Hey, Nick. Yes? Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well. For some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rumord will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Gober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and genre champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS 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 own promo code yes you heard me you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months that's just insanity to me so once again go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T Shameless. No spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and 
digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, the Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition or Blu-ray and the oh, Angel shit. Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment. Mill Creek is the industry leader when it comes to value price DVD and Blu-ray features and compilations. They have one of the largest catalogs out there, ranging from kids programming, classic films and television, independent cinema, documentary, and Latino cinema. Hell, they even produce their own content in-house. Mill Creek is a trusted partner with some of our favorite studios, including Sony Pictures, Walt Disney Entertainment, Warner Brothers, CBS Home Entertainment, and many more. And the best part about Mill Creek is how easy they are to find. Mill Creek has deals with thousands of big box stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and practically any other retailer you can imagine. Trust me when I say I've owned plenty throughout my time as a collector without even realizing it. They're a name I can trust. Some of my favorite releases include Can't Hardly Wait, Night of the Living Dead, House on Haunted Hill from their Vincent Price collection, the complete series of Quantum Leap, the complete series of The Secret World of Alex Mack, and of course, you're the hunter from the future. Head over to www.millcreekent.com, that's millcreekent.com, and see what their collection has to offer. I guarantee you'll find something great. Right. So how are you doing, Nick? I'm doing, I'm, let's see, I put some thought into this and now with all my craziness this morning, it went totally out of my mind. Wow, um, that was a 10, 10 minute long promo. <laughs> Wait, no, that that wasn't all just promo, that was someone was talking to <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, the, the setup of it, but it was still way too long. Here, I'm going to close word. We're going to close, we're going to cut that down, but how are you doing, Nick? I am doing fantastic. Um, I am trying to get a couple of new shows for the station launched. You um, told me a little bit about it. One of them is a history docu-series Ooh. that I'm trying to raise funds for. Um, I'm, that can't I'm be very easy. excited about it. We have a lot of local um, uh, historical experts. I'm making... Uh, relationships with the local historical society and the local museums so that we will be able to pull historical photographs and land records and documents um i need to be able to monitor my audio how's that there we go that's better you don't usually like Um, monitoring monitoring your own audio i've i've changed i've been doing a lot of this lately and now it's gotten to the point where i when i don't hear my voice then it's very weird yeah yeah so with this with this historical society um, are you gonna are you gonna like delve into the history of of Easton Maryland? 
It's the the eastern shore, so it's a little bigger than just the city. But yeah, this you know, I I grew up in the Midwest where you are, and things historically didn't really get really ramping up until like the early eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Whereas being in Maryland, like shit started happening here in the sixteen hundreds. So That's true. Um, it it goes back a long ways. Um, the, one of the first episodes that I'm going to be producing is on the Hill Community, which is a recently discovered, and the wording is is a little specific, but um, it is the longest occupied um, free black community. So it goes back to the mid to late 1700s. Really? when a uh when a um a free black community uh came together and um it it's still occupied today and has been continuously occupied Hmm. Uh, so until this discovery that uh title went to i believe uh, a community in louisiana so it was kind (laughs) of a big deal for the locals they did a big um archaeological dig they found um, a lot of artifacts. Did they find a uh, fife with the uh, with the uh, revelation that your town founder tried to kill George Washington? <laughs> they didn't. Unfortunately, no. the The fife that they found did not have any uh, documents hidden inside of it. Uh, they did, however, find um, buttons from a Buffalo Soldiers man. Uniform. Buffalo are easy to kill. <laughs> So there's a lot of historical. That sounds uh, really cool. Yeah. Well, there. The, once the show has been produced, will there be a way that our listeners can see it without living in Maryland? I am sure that unless things change dramatically, it will be up on the MCTV YouTube page. So yes. Well, then uh, I know everyone always loves going to the MCTV YouTube page to check out our show, but I think right. once this is up, which there, I don't think I don't think we mention enough because most of our episodes get like three views, so people don't know that it's. But out aren't there we still available. like the second most viewed show? It, we just I'm that kidding. one I'm episode. Kidding. That one episode was like we got like three hundred and fifty views. Which episode was that? Daddy issues. Of all the weird episodes right? to get views, it's the one where what, we're... What are people searching on YouTube that they <laughs> come to that one? And what's weird, though, is not only did they search for something along those lines, but then they kept it up and yeah. they, they watched it. I have been working on our like tags and descriptions and things, uh, and that has improved our our view results. So it's starting to increase. It's Those are hard. Especially yeah. like on the like this is inside baseball stuff with the tags part on the podcast side, just the audio side of it is so difficult because Apple no longer uses tags. So <laughs> you need to have a good description of what the show is in the title. So it makes it very difficult. Yeah. But yeah. anyways, uh that show sounds phenomenal and uh I, I expect you to Ken Burns the shit out of it and you know make sure you have <laughs> slow zoom in on pictures and stuff like right. that. And no, I'm gonna uh do that um technique. You saw it a lot like three to five years ago in documentaries, but I love it so much that even though it's no longer in vogue, I'm gonna use the shit out of it. Where of you like Photoshop layers 
out of historical photos. Oh, so you can like zoom one part of it in. Yes. Or, yeah. Yep. I always liked because I used to like it's such a simple effect. Right, it's but it it's gives so much life to this ordinarily like flat two dimensional thing that it, it's incredible how much dimension it adds mm. and interest. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on is a. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons live stream. I show. did see that. So, um, yeah. So that's uh, that's what I got going on. That sounds. How about you? Um, well, for me, I have been trying to get a new short film off the ground. I don't know if I told oh, the, you, but the, the uh, Dial G for Guillotine. Yeah, Dial G for Guillotine. Yes, I've been trying to get that off the ground. Um, up until this previous week where there was a death in the family, I, I had a lot of steam going of meeting up with people. And um, biggest thing of all, without spoiling the film, because I want people to see it, so I'm not going to tell them <laughs> everything it's about, but it's about a guillotine. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, our, our faithful lead character loses not one, but two body parts in said guillotine. <laughs> so, And the entire third act of the film is him missing body parts and trying to figure out the best way to do that so i've got to meet with some effects artist and figure out the best way to v because if i can't vfx out body parts there's no point in doing this right because it's real or i have to find a better way to do it so i've got to meet with some effects guys i know figure out one how possible it is and two how broke i'm gonna go trying to make this happen (laughs) uh i'm meeting with a, a producing buddy of mine who wants to help me get it made and the ultimate goal is to shoot the climax first, because if that stuff doesn't work, then I can give up before it's too late, you know? Sure. As opposed to shoot everything and then doing that and be like, oh, man, none of this is working. What the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> so, yeah. Disappoint uh, him early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Disappoint myself early. Um, and other than that, um, other than the revelation you gave me last night about a plan that you've got going on, I've got oh, yeah. it's going on. It's a long-term plan. It's nothing that I can Five pull off plan. in the next couple months, but um, yeah. Perfect. That yeah, be... I, don't, I don't got a whole lot going on, honestly. Well, that sounded like a lot. You're just trying to make a movie. Yeah, just trying to make a movie. That, you know. That's oh, and then I found details. out the the screenwriting software I used to use a program called Celtex. Uh, oh. It used to be freeware. Then they went to like subscription service where you have to pay per year. Uh, and I was still using a, a an old version of the. I, I never updated it, and I was just using <laughs> an old version, so I didn't have to pay for it. I cl- logged on today when I was waiting on you, and I uh, realized that it won't let me use it anymore because it's out of date. <laughs> <laughs> so now I gotta find a new free software to, <laughs> to write my little movies with. <laughs> Bastards. I know. I know. So, anything else you want to talk about? Any new news um, or old news? I thought there was, but. I for the again I was so rattled this morning that um, and I didn't take notes like I was supposed to. Um, well, I I can say um, you know we we've started that segment where we're going to be talking to other people about what's on their shame list and yes 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 on to today's episode i'm very excited that i got to talk to another filmmaker friend who i met on the film festival circuit for normal. Um, I met him a couple months before I met you, um, Dave Brown, a Scottish filmmaker. That's fantastic. So we're going to get a so, little bit of cultural. Yeah, in this uh, he did apologize in the beginning. You'll, you'll possibly hear that uh, he's 
very Scottish and very uh, Glaswegian, so you may not be able to understand most of what he says. Don't worry. This is audio. We will not have subtitles. <laughs> right. Um, and then before uh, we get into the actual episode, uh, I, we do have another patron that we have not had a chance to thank yet because oh, our last episode was a canned episode and... Yeah, so anyways, uh, I wanted to make sure he got his thanks in. Um, Stephen Millick, he is a... Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe him. He is a fi- He's a film festival programmer here in Wisconsin. Him and okay. his partner in crime uh, run the Twisted Dreams Horror Film Festival. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, sure. He's been a longtime supporter of the show. He, he even popped up on one of our, you know... Um, I call it our call-in episodes when we were doing that for a short period of time where people could kind of call in and say some, you know, a, talk about a certain movie that we're talking about. Um, yeah, he joined the Patreon, and I wanted to give him a little shout-out for supporting us. Of course. So that right is on. our that is our big thing. <laughs> and hey, if you haven't been uh, shouted out to through Patreon, why haven't you signed up for it yet? Yeah. Exactly, and exactly. We haven't gotten any reviews in a while either. I've not gotten a chance to read out any reviews. Well, actually, I I, I shouldn't say that. I haven't checked that in a minute. <laughs> Let me cut out this well, quick little bit of blank air. While, because I while you're doing that, I will say, um, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit in the last episode, but if you go over to patreon.com slash shameless picture show. Yep. Shameless picture show. You can find uh, all of our different... Uh, pledge levels and even if it's just at one dollar a month it comes out of your bank account you're not gonna miss that one dollar a month as it sneaks off to the shameless picture show to support to to allow us to cover our hosting costs and our the initial purchase of the merch that we can then provide to you yeah check it out please become a patreon supporter and uh and we will be ever so grateful. Just gonna say, so we we've been we've got we've only got the the four reviews which I've read on the air. Uh, okay. We've got twelve ratings on the show. Only okay. twelve. Come on, guys. Almost yeah. all of them are five star reviews except for one fuddy duddy who gave us three stars. <laughs> Jerk. Well, you know, speak your truth. Speak. I'm not. I wish he would it's... have said why he gave us three stars though. <laughs> it's like meh. <laughs> No one-star reviews, though. That's very true. That's very true. So rate us on Yelp. Exactly. Um, so if that's it, I can start. We can we can get to the topic at hand. Let's do it. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements, endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless I am Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is one guy that I can guarantee would rate a fortified drug den with me, Nick Richards. On today's episode of the show, we'll be talking about Gareth Evans' Indonesian action film, The Raid, a.k.a. The Raid Redemption. 
The film was chosen by Robert Flounderward, a patron, a patron in our auditorium tier on our Patreon. As a refresher, in this tier, you get our undying gratitude and love, a button, a sticker, and either an episode topic of your choice or a guest spot. Also, keep in mind that uh, within the next month or two, we will, we will be revising the Patreon levels just a little bit. So if we add anything cool, um, everything will be adjusted for and you'll get any new cool stuff that we're talking about. Um, yeah. Nice. In the raid, we follow a special operatives team as they prepare to raid a large building. Inside the building is floors upon floors of junkies, and at the top sits a ruthless drug lord named Tama Riyadi. The goal? To bring him in, dead or alive. Rama, a rookie on the team, is essentially our hero as we follow his journey most closely. He's new to the force, has a wife and a child on the way, and wants this mission to go smoothly. This won't be an easy mission, as the team is quickly discovered, and Tama, Tama Riata sends out a message to all junkies in the building. Whoever kills the intruders gets to live for free within the building. Thus begins the thrill, thrill ride of survival. The raid was written and directed by Welsh filmmaker Gareth Evans, and the idea came to him while shooting a documentary called Footsteps in Indonesia about its native style of martial arts called Pankak. Uh, Pancock Salat. I might be mispronouncing that. If we have any Indonesian <laughs> listeners, please correct me. He became enamored by the style and country, and after making a film called Marantau star, with star Aiko Uwes, Uwe, I looked it up earlier, I think it's Uwes, wanted to make something bigger. The Raid would become a breakout film with Gareth Evans, and the crew would lead to a, a, would sorry, The Raid would become a breakout film for Gareth Evans and crew, which would lead to a sequel to The Raid, a section in the anthology film VHS2, and a successful career making genre films. The film stars an entirely Indonesian cast, which is compromised of Aiko Uwais, Joe Taslim, Ray Sia Sahitapi, and Donny Alamsia. I'm I'm so sorry for this. We are so white. Yes, uh, I tried. I, I looked up some. You did. Some... You know what? I do not envy uh, that task that you had ahead of you, and you came out admirably from my perspective. Uh, the film would also feature music by Lincoln Park member Mike Shinoda, and the film would go on to win a slew of awards at film festivals across the world. So. Dan jangan lupa bersenang-senang.
Boys. That's the raid. Good night, All folks. Right. <laughs> That's it. That was enough work for you today. Woo, that was tough. All right, ladies. So uh, I had never seen the raid before this. Uh, nor had I. Um, and it really confused me because when the founder first suggested he's like, oh, you guys got to talk about the raid redemption. And I was like, do I need to see the first raid to, to understand this? <laughs> yeah, and he's like, the raid redemption is the first film. I'm like... Then what are they redempting? I, and then there's apparently there's a there's the raid two, which is what I thought this one was. Right. Um, so that that took a little bit of confusion. That that was a little confusing at first. But um, as I said, uh, um, Robert Ward. I'm just gonna call him Flounder. Flounder's the name I know him by, and I think he'll prefer yeah. it better that way. Flounder <laughs> suggested originally he wanted us to talk about Top Gun. And, oh, okay. Because uh, I've never seen it. Well, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and I just never I, like. Eh. That's I'm the same way. Bits and pieces, and he and he loves it. But uh, and then uh, I I told um, and then just last minute he changed. He's like, no, I want you guys to talk about the raid because he said it's his favorite action movie of all time. Okay, and it's been a movie that's okay. been on my my shame list for a while to see because it's a movie that anytime it's ever brought up, people have nothing but glowing things to say about it. So here we are. I had never heard of it. You had never heard of it. No. Well, it's, it's you know, apparently you don't watch enough Indonesian cinema, Nick. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> well, plus it's also, like, I, I actually, when I first heard about it, I knew it was a martial arts film. I knew um, it featured an in, in, in Indonesian fighting style and Indonesian actors. I wasn't expecting it to be fully uh, subtitled. And the, especially because I kept, whenever time I saw the name Gareth Evans, I was like, oh, he doesn't seem Indonesian to me, and he's not. He's from Welsh, but he <laughs> he lived in Indonesia for a while, and you know, picked okay. up the cu- customs. So I was like, I, there were so many confusing elements to me that I just could not put it together. But um, what do you think of the raid, Nick? Because you had never even heard of it. I had at least heard. I of it. Ha- hadn't heard of it, um, and you know, action films are not my typical go-to. Yes, we um, talked a little bit about that. What I what I will say about it is, I thought it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, not, uh, I was very aware the whole time of how much choreography went into the camera work. You know, as you're watching these fight sequences, and it's easy to think about the choreography of the actors, but how the the camera crew had must have had to be equally as choreographed mm-hmm. um, in very complex ways, and I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, I'll continue. I mean, you you know, I'm the story guy. That's been pointed out time and time again. And yes, I was. You, I wanted to talk about that too. You get like five minutes in the beginning where it's like, all right, here are the stakes. Baby on the way. Wife. All right, get up and go to work. And here's why we're going in. Don't ask any questions. There's a reason, and you can tell there's a reason why you but shouldn't I, ask any questions. That that was so crazy. It's like, don't ask any questions. But I've got questions. No, you don't. Like we're <laughs> paraphrasing, but that's very much how it felt. <laughs> and then it was like, Act One, machine guns. Act Two, machetes. Act Three, or they they like ran out of bullets, so now everybody has machetes. And then apparently everyone lost their machetes. So then Act Three is all hand to hand combat. And then you get, like, the wrap-up 10 minutes of story at the end. So I found it very, like, sectioned off. Yeah. You know, it was like, here, here's the intro story, here's the machine gun section, here's the, the machete section, here's the hand-to-hand combat section, and then you get your 10 minutes of wrap-up story at the end. Um, but that's not what this movie is, and mm-hmm. I know that. And uh, so at the end of the film, my main takeaway is that I think – the people that this movie is for, like that they did. Oh, I just got your uh, your 
text come through as that blue screen. <laughs> Must have taken a while to process. Uh, I I think what this movie was trying to do, yeah. they did incredibly well. Yeah. To the point that that I appreciated it as somebody who typically does not go in for this kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I felt too. Like I, it, I had a great time watching it, um, and I, I can definitely see why for like Flounder and for many other people I know, like this is this is the shit. This is like you know, as they said, the their favorite action movie, the greatest action movies they ever saw. Because one, um, there was this great like John Woo element to it, where like okay, so there is kung fu, there is this you know this hand-to-hand fighting martial arts style but then like they're also they also are using guns and at times they're kind of using guns in hand-to-hand combat which is still really a, a unique combination of things um it's a it's a fighting style that we don't ever really get to see um the film has got this really kind of cool like documentary style to it where it's uh you feel very much like a fly in the wall throughout this entire situation but i'm very much like you where there's a certain point where I wouldn't necessarily say I'm getting bored because that's not the case, but I needed a little bit more story to keep me going. And they and they did finally bring some in where we got to know about um, uh, Rama and his brother uh, yep. Andy. Uh, yep. Uh, and that kind of brought some new elements into it because, like, um, you know, because like at first it's like, well, why do we care? about this mission other than the fact that it's a mission you know yeah um you know can then you kind of got the feeling from the very beginning because you had the sergeant who was leading the team and you're like okay i don't trust this guy because he's being very flighty about everything um so yeah i almost feel like it's i it, to me at times it felt like it was like the first and maybe even second act of a movie that was stretched out so i, yeah. I actually do want yeah. to see the raid too and see how that plays out and to see if it adds any more story where i feel the like second was, redemption yes where i can uh, <laughs> see if there's any more story where like i was i was hoping for a little bit more yeah. um but and I, you, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm, I'm trashing the film at all because I really did enjoy it. But for my – you're more story-based than I am, but even I felt like I'd wanted just a little bit more. Not yeah. a lot, just a little bit more reason to care. Yeah. I think had had that intro five minutes been – had that leaked into like the first 15 minutes a bit more. Like I never for a second doubted that the – the older white haired, I think they called him the Lieutenant mm-hmm. um, was like in sending everybody in here for, uh, for bad reason or for selfish mm-hmm. self self promoted purposes. Like you knew that from the second you saw him and he opened his mouth, uh, you kind of, you knew how everything was going to play out in terms of the story from the first five minutes. Yeah. Um, the, the guy with the baby on the way, it's like, Oh, there's his stakes. You know, yep. it was, it was very transparent and that's fine like i i i wasn't put off by it yeah um yeah i'm not one, but, i'm not one of those people that like if uh if something's cliched it's automatically bad like yeah. you know to come up with something truly different and truly original every time you try to make a movie is nearly impossible so yeah. like i don't i don't think tropes i don't think clichés are bad no um the the other really positive thing that i'll say about this film is i thought that the the 
setting mm-hmm. this this uh apartment this you know high rise apartment complex uh that kind of turns into a fortress i thought was really smart really effective it felt claustrophobic i liked that beginning sequence where they were clearing the first few floors and they'd cut to the number in the stairwell Mm -hmm. to show you which floor they had just cleared and how they were being um very efficient and then when that all goes wrong when they shoot the kid Mm -hmm. running out and it goes into slow motion as they hit the alarm uh that tension was so incredible oh yeah like that that sequence was so well done, and I was on the edge of my seat. There was there was a couple scenes like that in this movie. That was being one, and I also love too, like how smoothly it was going at the beginning. They're like, yeah. oh, they're gonna knock out this building. It, to right? me, it, it felt like a video game. It felt like, uh, yes. you know, like the entry yep. levels of the video game. It's like, oh, this isn't so bad. This isn't so hard. <laughs> and then shit just starts going wrong, oh, and you start shit. losing all. Like you have all these highly trained killers. And yeah, I know they they make they made a point to mention that's a lot of that some of them are rookies and everything. But like people are just getting slaughtered one after another. It felt very much like a zombie film in that way, where yep. if you have enough people, even if they're not trained, coming after you, they're gonna start taking you out right and it's like it also had a great motivator for these people who are just the 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 junkies in the building they're like oh i can live here rent free and just get high all the time fuck yes i'm gonna just go crazy I loved how that was the motivating factor to like summon this army. Like, hey, rent control. <laughs> I know. I also love. Do you want a lifetime of free rent? Yes, I will murder anybody to get that. It's very timely because I'm sure if like if if like if like if they were to add like a subplot like that to the Purge movies, it's like <laughs> if you take out these purgers, you can live and you can you don't have to pay rent anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> do I have to oh, pay damn. for utilities? Oh, fuck it. I'll just do it anyway. <laughs> and we'll throw in Hulu. I get Hulu for free if I kill this motherfucker? Deal. Like, I, I feel like... It, Promo code shameless. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it, it's it's a weirdly strong motivator, even for these junkies who just... All they want to do is get high. They're like, that's one less thing I have to pay for? Fuck yes, man. Right. Like, it was equal parts ridiculous and believable. Yes. Which is why, why I loved it so, so much. So well. And then I also love the one guy who's not a junkie, or well, at least we don't think he is, who lives there. It's like, is this the best you could do? The Was this the guy that helped him hide in the wall? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't remember that, that guy's name. Uh, I'm looking it up to see if I can find, um, find his name. But, no, I can't find it. But anyways, so it's, it's like, he... he I love that him and his it was his wife are just living here. Mm. It's like, is this the best you guys could do? I right. don't think you could, if, unless you're a junk, you could even get a room here. <laughs> uh, there were that's that scene in particular. I found one really good thing to say about it, and one thing that I was kind of laughing to myself about the fact that. And I understand the purpose of it for tension about how the the you know the medium range bad guy uh went up and started like stabbing the the wall with his machete oh yes and it was it was very tense like mm-hmm. with the knife through the wall like oh, resting the, right on his cheek got the cheek and his yep. and then like he had to like grab the machete to get the blood off of it it's like that scene had right. a lot of tension to it but the fact that he went up to like a random wall that there happened to be people hiding in and just started stabbing it to test if there were people in the walls. 
and didn't go around the house like stabbing walls. <laughs> like, just went right up there and just started like st- like okay, all right. F- I'll I, I guess I'll give that one to you. What what I but, oh sorry continue. Uh the the positive thing was goes back to the choreography of the camera mm-hmm. and how it would go from this wild handheld mm-hmm. to these very still smooth moving shots and those overhead shots that would kind of move above the the what would be the ceiling with the ceiling removed where you could see both him stabbing the wall and them hiding mm-hmm. in the wall i found the way that they played with the movement of the camera back and forth to create these moments of of quiet tension and then chaos i found very effective and that was one of those moments that really stood out oh 100 percent. like um I think I've talked about in the show before where I'm not usually a huge fan of bottle films because I feel like not enough directors are 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 talented enough and that's that even sounds mean but like I just feel like it's very hard to make one location or a handful of locations constantly interesting throughout the entire film. Sure. Um unless you have just a real you know re- really crazy settings or something like that but like you know this is a a I don't even want to say an apartment complex because that's giving it too much credit. <laughs> um, this is a a rundown building filled with rundown rooms. Like if anything, if you see anything in the people's rooms, that's maybe a, a shitty TV and a rice cooker. Right. Uh, I was at one point. I, I, did, I, was, I noticed that I was nice rice cooker. <laughs> I was counting how many rooms had rice cookers. I found that really <laughs> just a great detail because it, it, I assume in Indonesia they eat a lot of rice. So yeah, yeah. and it's an inexpensive meal. So it became funny <laughs> counting all the rice cookers. Um, but you know, like the rooms are all pretty much the same. Realistically, I'm thinking from a filmmaking standpoint, they probably could have had a, a handful of rooms and just kind of recycled them, changed the the settings. But this movie right. found ways to make these rather generic looking scenario not scenarios but um sceneries constantly engaging because yeah. in terms of a production design most of the building is run down it uses the same color templates on all the walls even the the chance the the room where they could have gotten the most crazy with its their production design was like the drug lord's hideout even and that they was kept it pretty down. simple. No, like even him, like he he's not wearing a like, crazy suits or anything. He's just walking around eating an apple with sandals on. Like he he himself <laughs> his, is like, nothing. White tank top. <laughs> yeah, is nothing that special. Um, but they were able because of the very dynamic cinematography and the way they they um, they moved the camera kept that interesting because they didn't stick with one style for too long. You know, they went handheld when it felt like they needed to, and they went like you said, really slow and steady other times, and they would really show a lot of style throughout. And I yep. think that's kind of what kept me going was. Anytime that, you know, my, my filmmaking brain would say to like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to say try, starting to get bored, but I can't think of another descriptor for it. Anytime my filmmaking brain would start to lose interest, I it would be, um, I would I would see something that would keep me going. And like the big reveal at one point um, um, of... Um, I'm struggling with names with, uh, yeah, with Rama's but... brother, um, Andy, when, when we find out that they're connected, it's like, oh, that was another uh, thing that kept me going. Because yeah. at the, I was kind of waiting for that moment be, with the beginning when his, assuming his father was very quick, bring him back. Yeah. 
as <laughs> right before that. And then, funny enough, I forgot of... about that line because at one later on, when you know, looking back on it, it was Mad Dog and Andy kind of looking at the surveillance cameras, and I don't, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's pronounced Andy, but it's, it's, it looks like it. Uh, <laughs> it's A N D I, so I'd assume it's. A-N-D-I. I, yeah, I, I think we need to just throw out a huge disclaimer of we are going to pronounce all of these names wrong. Maybe it's Andy. I'll go say Andy. That sounds a little better. <laughs> okay. Andy uh, was looking at the um, the cameras, <laughs> and I was like, oh. He knows him, obviously. I didn't think of like a family member, but I was like, I bet they've got bad blood. Right. That's gonna that's gonna of... become a big fight later on. <laughs> Whenever like it, I was thinking the same thing when they were in the the tank kind of truck pulling up, and it's like there was the the sergeant, there was our protagonist, and then there was one guy. It's like, oh, he's a loose cannon who is gonna end up being a liability on this mission. He doesn't give two shits about nothing it's a good thing our protagonist is so level-headed and he has you know mm-hmm. uh, a baby on the way to make sure that he survived <laughs> it was <laughs> all the 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 tropes of you ne- you need that guy who just doesn't give a damn and is in there yep. just to fuck shit up <laughs> yep uh, one thing i do uh i did kind of love um is um that one i i love that like i said other gangster films for lack of a better term i feel like would have made the big boss guy into like you know wearing nice suits and you know a very scarface type situation i love that they did he's just some fucking dude right sweatpants yeah he's comfortable he's comfortable at all times but i love that so at the beginning the beginning montage of the film where where we're seeing rama uh you know practice um the, that Salat fighting style and is getting ready for work and you know it's I always I always like scenes like this because it's like you know it shows someone's dedication you know they get up way before they have to to get all this stuff in to show how serious they are and I love that you know when shit went down and he had to start using martial arts he wasn't when like every, when everyone ran out of machetes yeah he wasn't he wasn't just instantaneously like bruce lee i'm gonna destroy everyone he was still getting his ass kicked and yeah. i love anytime an action hero is uh imperfect the i i found that to be true through most of it where it stood out as a little false to me was when um the the brothers were fight taking on Mad Dog together, mm-hmm. and was it Andy? You said I, that's what I've been the saying. Brother? Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me. He he was chained up, getting his ass beat, and like he's you know nearly to death, and then he finally releases him. Mm-hmm. The way he jumped up and was able to fight, like I I I felt he like that surge. You and you could say adrenaline or what. I didn't buy that he could have fought that effectively mm-hmm. after that beat I need took. Nor do I think that Mad Dog was taking it easy on him. I you know I I tried a couple of different like explanations trying to, explain to make me feel better and it just didn't. <laughs> One thing that but I But again, that's not what this movie is. Like yeah. and that's okay. <laughs> One thing that I absolutely love in action films cuz like action films are not usually my go-to either. Like I the ones I like I really love and um but it's it was never always like my genre. Like I like kung fu films and you know there's 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 subgenres of the action genre that I really do like. But um one thing that I've always liked is I love in movies 
and whether it be an action movie or just a movie with a fight scene, when the fight scenes are really ugly to look at because they're they're <laughs> imperfect and not like where the choreography is so good that it do, it doesn't feel like it's choreo like yes. it has any choreography because there was a couple times where people would land in this movie like on the corners of tables and shit and I'm like oh god that looked like it really hurt or yeah. people would land no, they... in really weird ways and I'm like how are you not dead. There was the uh, scene where the guy uh, jumped off, uh, got thrown off of the, uh, like, oh, the up high right? and then comes down on his back and like, <clears> breaks <throat> his back. Yeah, yeah. That was, apparently, I heard that was a pretty uh, stressful day as well. That, yeah, the first day of that was stressful. We did two, two different days of shooting on that. We designed the stunts in a way that we can kind of do them as safely as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously certain things will go wrong along the way. And so we, the way we did that shot was we did it into three separate shots and then stitch them together. Mm -hmm. So the first shot is like a big wide shot. We took the wall out, we throw him over, and then the wire controls his path, so he lands on crash mats. Mm -hmm. But then the second and third shots is we put the wall back in, the camera's locked, mm -hmm. and we just raise him up uh, one meter away, drop him onto his bum so his back can come down one side, mm -hmm. drop him onto his back so his legs can come down the other. And so then the three get like sort folded. of stitched together, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So then, yeah, his back can look like it completely crushes. Mm -hmm. um, but when we did the first shot, the big wide one, like obviously he's on a wire to control his path. And the guy's pulling the wire, when he leapt off, they pulled too hard. So instead of coming down nicely on an angle, he just went straight across and smashed the back of his head against the wall on the other side. <laughs> uh, the impact meant that they lo lost control of the wire, so they dropped and it. And then they dropped it. Yeah, and then he, <laughs> he was falling down. But because of the impact, he came down on a trajectory. So he missed all the crash mats that we put uh. up for him and landed about five meters down on concrete then. It was like a heart and mouth moment. We were all rushing outside to see how he was. I mean, we have like a paramedics team and an you know, ambulance on standby and we really needed them that day. So they came in, got him up onto his feet eventually and then, you know, set him off. And then four days later, he came back and did the shot again. Because <laughs> like they would land on their necks and like they'd land like, <laughs> like I, one guy landed on the corner of a table. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that looks so painful. And it's No, I agree. It, it felt very real in a way that a lot of fight sequences don't. And I first started becoming aware of this style of choreography with two movies. It was actually, funny enough, Pineapple Express. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have drank coffee just before you said that. You didn't know I was going to say it. And then, no, uh, no, that one, I didn't expect that direction. Kill Bill Volume 2, and I'll explain what I mean. So, like, I, I Pineapple Express is always a comedy I've really enjoyed because uh, I yeah. thought it was, a, it was a really smart stoner comedy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they have this scene halfway through where Seth Rogen and Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, James Franco are yeah. fighting Danny McBride because uh, Danny McBride sold them out. And they have this really just ugly fight. You know, they're throwing each other through walls. None of it looks good. None of, and, like, I was listening to the audio commentary, and the director's like, yeah, I wanted, I, I, I love the idea of having a fight scene in a movie where none of the people know how to fight. <laughs> and I was, and he's, so he's like, you know, like, little things like, you know, someone gets hit over the head with a, with a bong, or someone gets thrown into a wall, and they don't get up right away because it hurts and it sucks. I, oh. <laughs> um, and then, like, Quentin Tarantino talks about, the fight scene in Kill Bill Volume Two, where Uma Thurman and the the woman with the eye patch are fighting in the um, the uh, what's it called um, trailer, the uh, um, like the living trailer. I can't think what they're called. Like trailer from a trailer <laughs> uh, park. Mobile home. Mobile home. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's not enough room to have a fight, 
So they're, you know, like she can't even get her sword out because he doesn't. She has so little space, and they're having just this really ugly fight. And he said, "Yeah, when I was when I was figuring out the choreography of that scene, I had just watched Jackass two, and I just thought, let's do a Jackass style fight in the middle of this kung fu movie." <laughs> and ever since, like, I heard them both talking about like just doing ugly fights for lack of a better term, I'm more aware of it now. And like that's what I loved about this film is like so while a lot of the martial arts was really beautiful, the way it was shot and the way that the choreography played out was really sometimes unpleasant to look at and very realistic in that way and actually one of my favorite like attack or fight or whatever scenes actually doesn't even have like a lot of the really nice martial arts it's when um i want to say like the the remaining members of the the attack squad go into like the 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 room where they're making all the drugs and, you know, there's some people who don't know how to fight. The, the, the gray-haired captain is just, you know, throwing punches and he doesn't have all of his fancy kung fu. Yep. And he's just, you know, hitting people with guns and shit. And it's like the, the way that scene plays out is just so... That was probably my favorite fight scene of the movie. <laughs> Cocaine dust getting yeah. kicked up. and <laughs> You know, people getting thrown onto tables and being like, oh, God, that hurts. <laughs> they do not pay me enough for this. <laughs> So yeah, I I I, I kind of loved uh, things like that in the yeah. movie. No, and and that goes back to the the location thing too. I think a lot of kung fu movies, um, you know, are are in more open areas, and that gave this one more of that like video game or or horror movie even mm-hmm. like diving into the unknown and. Uh, mm-hmm. Trouble could be around any corner as you are progressing through it. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've always just, was very tense and very effective. I've always kind of loved the concept of a movie where you have to go up levels, for lack of a better term. Like Bruce Lee <laughs> did it in Game of Death, where he had there once again a tower, and each he had to defeat each person on each floor to make his way up to his ultimate goal. Yeah. Um, the movie, the Dr- Judge Dredd remake slash re- reimagining just called Dread that came out uh, years ago had a very similar plot line to The Raid. And I am and I looked it up afterwards and Dread came out afterwards. So that, <laughs> I'm sure that was, uh, you know, it's, it's about uh, cops who have to go up a drug slum to find a drug dealer. Like, okay, that's, okay. that's, that's very yeah, I don't see similar. the similarity there that you're trying to point <laughs> out. Uh, so I've always kind of, lo- like, while I'm not a huge fan of, like I said, bottle films, I love the this concept of tiered violence, almost. Yeah. Like, oh, you think the guy in the last floor, floor is strong? Wait until you try me. <laughs> and I love the idea yeah. that someone's like, let me just put... Let me put the guys in ascending order of who's strongest. <laughs> totally. Uh, what it totally reminded me of, and this is going to be silly, um, Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door. Explain. <laughs> um, I've never played it, it. it. It's like an RPG version of Mario, and this Ooh. is like one of the second or third ones in the franchise. Um, but there is an area that you can get to that is... It's this, but down instead of up. It's a hundred floors, and you go down, and you fight. And once you beat them, you go down again, and you can only exit back out to the top like every ten floors yeah. or so. And so the goal is to be strong enough to get through all hundred levels and beat the bad guy at the bottom. And actually, King- <laughs> Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories has a very similar plot line as okay. well. This is about a tower, and the higher you go, you have to you go up in this tower and you know there's various levels on each floor 
and the higher you get the closer you you get to discovering you know the secret behind this tower but the more you forget about your own <laughs> life so it's like oh see there's a lot you can do with this idea of yeah. ascending or descending i mean this this would made the perfect arcade shooter oh 100 like in times it's like it almost because especially because it's uh it's made in 2011 so it ha- still has that early 2000s feel where yeah. they were making a lot of adaptations of video games like if someone would have been like oh the raid was a really popular you know shooting game like i can fucking see it yeah totally uh, and and that's not a slight against it because I, and a lot of video game adaptations are not effective. No, um, I like but, them, but for this the wrong was reasons. good. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's cool. Yeah, and it, I, I I'm not referencing Super Mario Brothers in particular. There, are we we're <laughs> not like, going to have that conversation again. <laughs> but like the House of the Dead, did yeah. you see that? Yeah, it, like. Ugh. But this was actually good, in, and I'm not saying that it was based on a video game, but it had that video game fit. It felt like you were playing a video game without a controller in your hand, Yeah, um, but done effectively. Yeah, like if if, so, if they were to make a raid video game, it would probably do really well. I'd play it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, as, I, as I said, I don't know if it's going to make its way into the episode. I lost my notes. I accidentally deleted them. So I don't have any notes for this episode, Flounder. So don't be too pissed off at me. Um, but Nick, what other notes do you have so we can kind of um, see where the conversation goes? Yeah, uh, uh, I found the, the music very effective. Mm-hmm. And I, until you read the intro, I didn't realize um, who, well, I don't know how much of the music um, you said. Lincoln Park? Uh, Mike Shinoda specifically uh, from Lincoln Park did okay. a lot of the music along with another gentleman by the name of Joseph Trapanese. Okay. Which makes sense. You can kind of hear that. Uh, not that I was ever a huge Lincoln Park listener, but um, I found it like the way that it pulsed and droned mm-hmm. um, did a lot to add to the tension. In, in a film that didn't need music to feel tense, that continued to amp it up and i'll go back go back to that sequence um where they uh where shit just started turning bad when the alarm got hit and mm-hmm. that kind of like wow wow of the yeah of the alarm but the tension and everybody holding still waiting to see how this is gonna go down um the music was really great there in particular yeah like it have like a a, a constant beat going and yeah. like I said, the music got big when it needed to be and would be kind of like crazy and fun. And then, you know, it would it would soften when it needed to be because I feel like that's sometimes the a thing that a lot of action movies don't know how to do is to soften itself, essentially. Yeah. So it's and, you know, you need the, the valleys to appreciate the peaks, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, I, like I the, agree with you. Like how you were describing uh, in our terminator episode the good thing happens bad thing happens good mm-hmm. thing happens bad thing happens like you need that back and forth for for uh action yeah 100 percent um i do i again because you know could could we talk more about the light end sure could we talk more about the camera angle sure but i don't think i would say anything that hasn't already been said mm-hmm. um my my final wrap up and it's just a an ex, expansion on what i said in the beginning um 
did I feel that this movie was important? No. And, and most movies that we discuss, it, your hunter from the future, is that movie important? No. <laughs> uh, I still love it. Uh, Savage I don't Harbor think... is not important. <laughs> it has a Stallone. Um, what they did, or uh, what they were trying to do, they did very effectively. And mm-hmm. if that's what you're looking for, then you are going to love it. Yeah, and it all, it, like I said, it it I liked it enough that it's like I want to go see the second film. Um, I like I was like, oh, they they raised the bar so high for an action film on this one. It's like I want to see um what they do with the second one and i heard from multiple people that the second film is even better okay in terms of as an action film the i would say the last 10 to 15 minutes brought it up to that level for me without that like brother relationship and how the they both stayed in their world like for the same reasons that he's a cop the other one is a in this drug empire Mm -hmm. like if they had supported that more, I don't think it would have taken away from it being a great action film, but I think it would have made it a better film overall. Yeah, and actually I kind of love that line because it's it, the movie kind of lives in this moral middle ground because like you said, both both brothers the, kind of have their yeah. their reasoning. And um, I think the uh, Andy said something along the lines of, uh, just because what I chose to do with my life is is bad doesn't mean I can't be good at it. Right. And I was right. like, oh, shit, and, that's a good point. You know, the it, there's a lot to explore in this setup with moral ambiguity. And, you know, that that the cops are not the good guys and the drug lords are the bad guys. Uh, they have people in this drug organization fighting themselves at mm-hmm. one point. You know, at what point is family more important than duty to your organization and um, the the obvious corruption of the police force makes it so that they're not the good guys here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, uh, you know, I don't think one's better than the other. And and that was interesting. And I would love to have seen more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so, but, but again, that's, that's coming from the, the story guy. And then like, I just, I love some of like the moral middle grounds we're talking about. Like, so it's like, here are all these these drug addicts who are going after and trying to kill people, but like they have kids, yeah, and kids are yeah. living here. And then like uh, um, the 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 kung fu fighter Mad Dog, like he 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 takes uh, Rama to uh, to a place and uh, he, they put down their weapons and pretty much like okay, let's do this for real, you know? Yeah. Like, though, it's like it's though he fun. does say like he does it because like. That's the way that he enjoys it the most, which makes him like a psychopath. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like you know, it's like he could just he can get the job done. He could kill the guy and yep. be done. But it's like I feel like it's almost like a res- like he enjoys it most that way. But I feel like it's almost respecting. It's like, hey, if you can beat me, you deserve to live. That he, uh, I I don't think that that was his motivation, but I do think that that's part of his his thing, his ethos of yeah. It, um, I know I can tit your ass and if you can tit mine then like then i don't deserve to be here <laughs> yeah and then like uh i just i like and even like the main the 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 ruthless drug dealer to an extent was just like i just love how very low-key he was about most things like yeah you know the only time they ever seemed to get like aggressive is when he found out that um andy was potentially um 
going behind his back. Right, and he stabbed his hand. Yeah, I, you know what? I really enjoyed the confrontation between the main drug lord and the the older police sergeant. Yeah, um, I did too. Where um, there was a point where I'm like, "This is where you're supposed to shoot him because he's the bad guy, and you're no longer out of options." But you're not gonna. And then he shoots him. I'm like, "Thank you." <laughs> that never happens in the movies. <laughs> like they just talk at each other, and then one of them gets away. Yeah, and he did, and then he went to to kill himself and in a very uh we just watched taxi driver and the click 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 yep. you know kind of moment um no i thought that that played out in a way that i respected because it wasn't just the the cliches of what that moment usually is in a film mm-hmm. yeah um which then allowed uh andy to like become the new the you're assuming you don't really it's not spelled out but you're assuming then he is gonna take over this this drug empire i just i wish there would have been an after credit sequence of andy in the uh in the complex just sweeping <laughs> pushing bodies with a push yeah. like oh gotta get it cleaned up for the next batch or yeah putting out like uh rental like want ads and <laughs> spacious 200 square foot <laughs> minor machete stabs in the in the plaster just minor nothing crazy well one, a, one of the rooms do, doesn't have a floor anymore but yeah, right uh, a handyman's dream <laughs> so yeah like i like i said i um i i knew the reputation of this film and i went in excited but also a little skeptical just because like i said this is not my um it's not my normal go-to genre, but I was like, well, yeah. it is, it is, it's an action film, but it also is a kung fu film, and I love those. So it's like I was kind of going in um, um, with mixed emotions, and I came out on the other end really enjoying it. You know, I'm not Roger Ebert where he gave the movie a fucking one star. <laughs> I I wouldn't say that I really enjoyed it, but I did respect it. Okay, for what it was. Okay, I got. I, I don't know that I'm, like, super eager to see the sequel. I'll probably never watch it again, but I definitely respected it for what it was. You didn't have a terrible time watching it, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, right. It's more of a just again, lack of interest in, in how this particular one was put together. Ain't no Phantom Tollbooth, that's for sure. Nope. <laughs> Where's the math equations? As you can tell, I have superior taste in movies. <laughs> No, okay. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Nick? Uh, not on this movie, but I think this would be a great time to uh, listen in on filmmaker, producer extraordinaire Dave Brown's uh, What's on the Top of His Shame List. Is that what we're calling the section now? What's on the top of your shame list? Sure. That sounds I don't know. That it sounds does. pretty good. It's a little wordy. If we come up with something better, then we'll change What's it. What's on and the top then, of your shame list? That's. I feel like it needs like a game show. Like the crowd's like, "What's on the top of your shame list?" <sighs> <laughs> or you could go with the um, the Family Feud. Uh, What's on the top of your shame list? <laughs> All right. Well, let's listen. What What did you say? His name was Dan Brown. Dave. Dave, Dave Brown, Brown. My mistake. Let's see what Dave Brown has to say. Okay, so um, today on our little segment, um, I'm getting to talk to my good uh, friend who is also a filmmaker. Um, we were just talking about how um, 
my story of meeting you is very, very similar to my story of how I met our co-host, uh, Michael Byers, through uh, doing the film festival circuit for my film. Um, but your, it, was that, your, was Bird in the Hand your first film? It was pretty much, I mean, you make stuff um, kind of the way your buddies. I should point out I'm Scottish, so no one who's listening to this is going to understand me. <laughs> I apologize, but it is what it is. Well, then uh, they'll they'll assume that like everything that you're saying is really important if they can't make it out. <laughs> yeah, and it was pretty much so. I was living in Ireland, strangely enough, and then um, I'm just kind of made a short, um, kind of right before I moved back to the UK, and I'd just about given it up, and then. The film got into DC Film Festival, um, and came in my short showed right before yours. Yeah, we we started so, talking a little just before you came out. It's like, yeah, we gotta grab a beer, and then we fell in love over uh, <laughs> our mutual love of Weezer's Blue Album and <laughs> and Calvin and Hobbes and Calvin and Hobbes. Yep, generally yeah. um, been massive geeks for the <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, it's. I don't think I've said your name yet. Uh, this is Dave Brown. Um, uh, the uh, I'm going to embarrass you here. And I know you don't like hearing it. Um, the Scottish BAFTA award-winning Dave Brown. <laughs> or nominated. Nominated or? Uh, I won. You, oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, <Okay>. just. <laughs> it was a short. And it's a Scottish BAFTA, not a real BAFTA. But it's still. <laughs> it's. It still has the fucking thing on it, though. Some point with that kiss. Right. Are you? I, I presume you can swear in this. It's yeah, not... totally. Um, please, by all means. So, um, <laughs> I want to hear um, three films that are on your shameless. What's What's first up? So I overthought this. As <laughs> Perfect. As into two. <laughs> so I went into like pure art house nonsense, and went and then went into like best hundred film lists and went, I went, I've actually seen quite a lot of these. <laughs> well, I went two from recent times, so I'll get them out of the way fairly quickly. Okay. Uh, and the first is kind of Interstellar, which sounds like a film that I would love. It's spacey sort of stuff. It has kind of, it has kind of Matthew McConaughey. It has, it's a Christopher Nolan film, I think. That that is the only Christopher Nolan film that I have not seen. Well, okay. I mean, there we go. But for yep. some reason, it was because my wife saw it. And then I'm not going to watch it kind of by myself. It's an event movie. It's not like you kind of sit down and go, oh, this is a nice... <laughs> a nice mellow watch for the <laughs> evening. Fuck that. But anyway, um, the other one is La La Land. Which okay. It seems I should have seen, and it's not that I particularly want to watch kind of um, kind of thing me kind of Ryan Gosling <laughs> sing and dance, but at the same time, it won loads of kind of awards and stuff. And I, as a filmmaker, watch things that win awards. I just couldn't can't arse, to be honest. <laughs> <That's> Perfect. <it. laughs> um, um, okay, so there's the two. Uh more mainstream ones and then you have an art house one it's not an art house one oh. by any means but crawl yes i have a i also i have not seen any of your three but i do have a vhs copy of crawl waiting 
for me to have the right time to put it in. <laughs> well, you could kind of digitize it and then watch it through a kind of super. And I mean, anyway, like it's just it seems I love '80s movies. I love yeah. it. I mean, it's a kids film, I think, but it's got quite a violent kids film with the special effects stuff. I think. Well, it it seems like it's in the vein of Conan the Barbarian or uh, one that I've talked about before. It's it's a horrible B movie called uh, "You're the Hunter from the Future," (laughs) which seems like they were trying to mash up like Conan the Barbarian and Masters of the Universe, but with dinosaurs also, and it didn't like it's phenomenal in that horrible way it sounds a bit like beastmaster yeah totally uh, the same sort of cheesy kind of rip off shit that is really watchable though when you're 15 and smoking a joint right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah awesome uh so yeah if uh you are able to watch any of those we'll have to stripe again and you can tell us what you thought and we'll do an well, update on I mean, I did tape Interstellar and La La Land off the cable box. I, I don't know what you're equivalent TiVo. Yeah, yeah, we have TiVo out here. I mean, though that we don't, that's why I know that you have TiVo through American TV. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we have Sky, it's called. Sky. Okay. But anyway, um, it's the same shit. Um, I've got them both kind of taped, and Crawl is just... I should probably just download it, to be honest. Cause right. <laughs> Just, just fuck those filmmakers. Yeah. Independent filmmakers, screw them. No, um, <laughs> God damn it. They don't need money. They're sitting on all of that independent film money. But, I mean, it is mental because, you know, like, they've got the Disney thing coming. They've got, uh, you've got kind of Netflix. I mean, you've got the Disney one now, do you? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and the Disney Plus. So, like, I mean, you can find, I mean, I find myself, I've got Netflix and Amazon, and I did have a similar thing in the UK called Now TV. Okay. It's another streaming crap. Right. And movie at one point. Okay. And yet you still find yourself kind of looking through stuff and going, eh. just watching, like, I don't know. Right. Kind of, something from the 80s, kind of Temple of Doom or something. And then you go on and you find it on Amazon and it's like, four or five pounds, whatever, to rent it for a day, and you're like, no. I don't want to... I didn't go buy the... Yeah. For the same thing. Um, Cool. Well, uh, thanks for sharing, and uh, yeah, we should do, uh, like, a proper episode with you sometime that our listeners will only understand half of. (laughs) I'll try and come back, actually, with some different ones that are not quite... So, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed with Interstellar, and... And kind of La La Land. I could have got something more interesting, I think. Eh. Eh. I thought it, and then I went into like, this is the Three Colors Red trilogy. This is like the. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right. You would, <laughs> like, oh, I want to get something really heady that makes me say, eh, or La La Land. <laughs> Whatever works. You know, kind of Oscar winning crap. Yeah. But, um, no, that was perfect. Um, and it sounds, and you had said that. Essentially, you have, you've actually created this list for yourself. This list of films that you need to watch or want to watch. Um, Ages ago, I did this. Um, I started um, a spreadsheet because I'm a producer, and that's what <laughs> I do. Um, I started it ages ago, and I did like, and it got, it just got ridiculous. I couldn't keep track of it. 
Yeah. Kind of um still have it. It's on a Google sheet somewhere, but at the same time I don't <laughs> It's not something that is being actively managed. <laughs> I'm trying to watch a lot more movies, though, because I found that, especially going to festivals and stuff, I was in um, kind of TIFF last year. Okay. Um, and guess how many films I watched? How many? Two? One! And guess what it was? Yours? Fucking Joker. Oh! <laughs> of all the films to see... At a film festival, celebrating supposedly kind of indie filmmaking. You watch the one that's going to be in all the theaters that you could have watched anywhere. Exactly. I mean, to be fair, I watched it two months before I could watch it. Sure. But at the same time, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> you got to do better. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even go with kind of Jojo Rabbit or something. Do you know what I mean? I went with the like, anyway. Had, had more of a yeah indie feel to it. And I'm going to the finale in two weeks' time or something like that. <laughs> Not going to watch a single film because <laughs> I'm there for four days to kind of pitch, uh, though, for some money. You're, you're right. You're going to be working, not not absorbing. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Ooh. Later. Well, what an exciting set. No. <laughs> The joke is, I can't hear what it says until I edit it. Okay, well, um, so that was The Raid. Yeah. And that was Dave Brown. Yeah. And this is The Shameless Picture Show. Yeah. And if you're not done with that, I've got two words for you. What are those two words? Watch movies. On top of that, I guess we should all... Wait, no, we we, we don't have to wrap up now. We have a new wrap up. We're all wrapped. I think we're done. Cool. Cool. All right. Before I send you guys home, I want to take care of a little bit of extra business. Normally, this is where you would hear our new outro with Nick talking about who edits the episodes and all that good stuff. But before we do that, I um, I wanted to make good by some of our sponsors. You heard our new sponsor at the top, Midnight Movie Society. Um, which is really cool, but you've also heard our near and dear friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. And the last episode Nick and I did together, um, I reviewed Limits of, The Limits of Control from Arrow Academy and House by the Cemetery by Blue Underground. But what I didn't get a chance to talk about was a, was a third title, uh, by Vinegar Syndrome, and then I got two more to go on top of that. I'm going to try to knock these out really quickly. I know I say that every single time I do one of these, but um, let's see if I can actually do it for one. So um, since it is actually, because of the power of editing, it is actually 3.29 p.m. on a Friday, on Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. I do not have any coffee, but instead I'm going to take a sip of Gatorade for the working man. But actually, since it is Valentine's Day... Um, if you have not seen My Bloody Valentine, either the original by George Mihalka or the remake, check them out. I actually really like the remake. Uh, it was one of the first 3D movies I got to see in theaters. Um, so that's always going to have a a special part in, in my heart for me. But even like the original My Bloody Valentine for me is top five slasher films of all time. And I love that uh, now, because I when I first saw it, it was before the remake came out, and 
um, when it was coming out, Anchor Bay was still a company, and they put out a Blu-ray, a Blu-ray, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get better at my speech impediment, uh, a Blu-ray of the original film that had both the theatrical cut, which is okay, which is really good, uh, and it had the unrated cut, which is fucking phenomenal, but the footage from the unrated cut didn't look good. It was very obvious. You could see the seams. But regardless, I saw it for the first time then, and I loved it. So when uh, Patrick Lucier, or is it Lucier or Lucier? Well, when Patrick Lucier, Lucier sounds cooler. Patrick Lucier and Todd Farmer's My Bloody Valentine 3D came out. I was stoked. It's very, it's it's a similar film, but very different stylistically. The original My Bloody Valentine from 1981 is an 80s film. It's got a, it's got atmosphere so thick you can cut it with a knife. Where My Bloody Valentine 3D is a early 2000s slasher film, and I don't mean that in a bad way because I happen to love a lot of those films that came out in that time period. So it has nothing to do about with anything that I'm going to be talking about today. But I wanted to show some love for My Bloody Valentine and pick up the new Scream Factory Blu-ray of the 1981 My Bloody Valentine that just came out. I just got mine in yesterday. So I've not had a chance to watch it yet. Um, I've heard nothing but fantastic things. Um, and if it's anything like their Black Christmas release, it's going to be integral. But anyways, enough about My Bloody Valentine. Uh, let's get on to my three titles from Vinegar Syndrome. I'm going to talk about them in order of year that they were released. So release order. Wow, that took me a little bit to figure out what I was trying to say there. Uh, the first film is a gem to, in some extent, uh, uh, a little art house gem that I had never heard of before I sorry before I got the disc in um and I guess it's a little art house film called Taking Tiger Mountain. The back of the box says in a dystopian future, Billy Hampton, played by Bill Paxton in his first on-screen role, is a World War 3 draft dodger who finds himself part of an experimental brainwashing program created by a group of radical feminists. After being released from the program, Billy heads to Wales for what he believes will be a sex-filled vacation. But, unbeknownst to him, Billy is really there to assassinate the Welsh Minister of Prostitution. A wild hybrid of art and experimental filmmaking techniques, Taking Tiger Mountain began production in 1974 under the direction of Kent Smith using short ends left over from Lenny. After languishing in an unfinished form, the film was resurrected and completed by Tom Hickaby and eventually released in 1983, immediately making an underground legend. Adapted in part from William S. Burroughs' classic short story Blade Runner, Taking Tiger Mountain transcends genres and engulfs the viewer in a high-contrast fever dream of science fiction-based surrealism. Never officially released on home video and long viewable only from poor quality bootlegs, Vinegar Syndrome proudly presents the world home video premiere of Taking Tiger Mountain, newly restored in 4K from its original 35mm black and white technoscope negative. So before I talk about the movie, I should uh, mention, so they talk about uh, Ken Smith making this film using short ends from the movie Lenny. Short ends, for those of you who don't know, are leftover film. So... If I'm shooting a scene, I'm shooting a movie, and uh, I get everything I need from that role, and there's not a whole lot left over on the role, instead of trying to use it, uh, a lot of times they'll dispose of it, or uh, 
or sell it to filmmakers on you know on a budget and it's usually really high quality stuff because like lenny was a big film um and so because of that taking tiger mountain looks fantastic because it's using really high quality film stock it never really shows his age. It never really feels like a rundown, low-budget film. I don't want to say rundown. That's the wrong wording. It never feels as low-budget as it probably realistically is. So Taking Tiger Mountain, I didn't love. Mainly because, well, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of um, Under the Skin. Uh, who directed that film? Uh, Jonathan Glazer. Um, in terms of the fact that it had a very loose story. Um, it kind of took its time. It was meandering. Uh, I think I liked Under the Skin more than I liked Taking Tiger Mountain, but knowing that's a bigger film that more people probably would have seen, if you liked Under the Skin, this might appeal to you. Like I said, I, I, I really liked Under the Skin. I didn't like this as much, but it's the closest film I can think of in terms of relation. What was difficult about the film was not necessarily that it's lack of plot. I can, I can deal with a lack of plot pretty... Uh, pretty easily um because the plot that was there really kept me interested and um if you want to see bill paxton's penis there's a lot of it in this film but you know as the back of the box says he's a, a draft dodger uh and they're working on an experimental brainwashing brainwashing program um so that way he can assassinate the minister of prostitution um it takes a while to kind of get to that point. A lot of the film is watching Bill Paxton walking around Wales trying to figure out his place in life. And the film is saying a lot about subliminal messaging and how radio broadcasts um, are feeding us lies. But where the film becomes diff- difficult is it does a, it's got a very, and I, I'm confident it's intentional. Uh, audio mixing technique where so if there are radio broadcasts being played there's always radio broadcasts being played in this film in the background or um it became very difficult to figure out whether or not the the audio in the movie was diegetic or non-diegetic meaning whether it's in the scene or it's not in the scene because you're kind of getting beat over the head with these radio broadcasts throughout the entire film that are filling you in on the world around you but at the same time bill paxton's character billy is having is having conversations with locals and they never mix down the radio broadcast so he could talk. He's talking, and the radio broadcasts are also going, and they're about at the same volume, and it becomes this cacophony of sound that really makes it hard to follow. I wanted to love this film. Everything about it sounded really interesting to me. I just had a really hard time getting into it. Um, I think about the film still quite a bit because it was, like I said, it was really well shot. Um and from what I heard, Bill Paxton really believed in this film. So there's something there that he thought was was interesting. So, like I said, it wasn't for me. Um, and it's kind of hard to talk about in depth because the in depth because the film is something you kind of have to experience. Uh, wasn't for me, but I once again I've said it before. I love the vintage engine is doing stuff like this. So I hope they continue this. Features on the disc state. Newly scanned and restored in 4K from its 35mm technoscope negative. Technoscope is just a, a wide frame shot, so the movie shot very wide. Like I said, it's a gorgeous looking film. 
uh, presenting both the original theatrical version and the 2019 revisited version. And there's director introductions for both versions. I need to talk a little bit about the revisited version. So um, Tom Huckabee, who resurrected the film, did a new edit of the film. And in a lot of ways, he's actually kind of correcting some of the issues I had with the film, where he does bring Bill Paxton's voice out a little bit more. And I think he's re-editing the film to bring out a little more story. He changes the music. He he re, uh, he changes the order some of the scenes play out in, um, and he adds some new effects. And I personally think the effects are a little jarring and kind of take me out of the scene a little bit like i don't think the his re his revisited version i don't think looks as good as the original version but i did watch about 20 minutes of the revisited version and i want to go back to it because like i said he did fix some of the the issues that i personally had with the original film i just don't know if i necessarily like the way that he went about it but i love that both versions of the film are on here so no matter what you can experience the film um through the lens of Kent Smith who originally started this film because that's what Tom Huckabee did he he finished the film based on Kent Smith's I guess original notes and the way that he wanted it to be finished and then Tom Huckabee did another version of the film based on more his influence so I think it's cool that both versions are on here there's also a feature called taking over Tiger Mountain, an interview focused on the original version with director Tom Huckabee. There's also um, uh, Revisiting Tiger Mountain, an interview focused on the revisited version with director Tom Huckabee. So um, I've listened to both of, the, both of these. He's just kind of talking in depth about how the film came to be, why he changed what he did, what he liked about it, and so on and so forth. Interviews with Welshman, a short film by Ken Smith, uh, a booklet essay by Heather Drain, Reversible cover artwork and English subtitles. The film was directed by Tom Huckabee and Kent Smith. Stars Bill Paxton and the townspeople of Langendog, Langendovery, Liliana, Gwen. Oh, I can't even pronounce these. They're all towns in, in, in the south of Wales. The uh, film was made in 1983. It's 83 minutes, black and white, 2351 Cinescope cinematography with a mono soundtrack so taking tiger mountain uh for fans of art house cinematography i think it's a must own uh it's not one that i'm going to return to very often but i'm glad it exists next up since we're going in order of um, theatrical release we have a film from 1988 pledge night back of the box says it's hazing season at Phi Up, and the boys are up to all sort of nasty pranks on their hapless pledges. In between regular bouts of wetting their whistles at the campus watering hole with some of the area's beautiful sorority babes. But this is going to be one literal hell week, as the un- as they unwittingly unleash the spirit of Acid Sid, an unfortunate pled pledge who was accidentally dissolved in acid during a hazing prank gone wrong some 20 years ago. As the helpless frat boys and pledges fall victim to Sid's wrath and seemingly indestructible towering zombie corpse, it's up to the stragglers to figure out how to kill someone who's been dead for two decades or die trying. A truly one-of-a-kind blending of post-Animal House TNA sex comedy and gore-filled supernatural slasher Paul Ziller's Pledge Night unloads a nearly non-stop barrage of weirdness on the viewer. From the jaw-dropping, all based on actual practices, hazing rituals, 
as meticulously researched by writer-producer Joyce Snyder from Raw Talent, to the slimy and often explosive gore from effects wizard Dean Carlottis, along with soundtrack performed by Anthrax, whose singer Joey Belladonna makes a memorable on-screen appearance, Pledge Night serves up a non-stop side of horror and weirdness guaranteed to keep you glued to the screen, mouth agape. Vinegar Syndrome is excited to offer up this one-of-a-kind slice of sleaze on Blu-ray for the very first time, newly restored in 2K from its original 35mm camera name. Each year, this wild fraternity pledges six new members. This year, there is one difference. Beyond these doors, within these walls, for these college students, Pledge Night is about to begin. Pledge Night, brothers to the end, the very end. Pledge Night is interesting because I really liked half of it. Uh, surprisingly, I liked um, I liked the aesthetic that it was trying to build up. I liked one. I also I, I love college like horror films, and I love that this took place in, in the winter, and it wasn't necessarily a Christmas film, so that was just kind of cool. Uh, settings were great. I really liked the characters. So the the lead character, I cannot think of his name at the moment. Give me one second. I will find out. All right. Never mind. I cannot. Anyways, the lead character in the film, uh, he's very likable, and uh, he's actually defending this fraternity and all the goofy things that they're doing. Um, so yeah, through half of the film, it is just kind of like you watching these pledges try to pledge to a fraternity and it should, shouldn't be nearly as interesting as it is. And I think a big part of it is because, um, the screenwriter, Joyce Snyder did actually research a lot of these pledges or uh, hazing techniques that fraternities were using and wanted to work them into the film, um, herself. So like, it almost feels like a slice of life type of situation. Uh, it takes a very long time for any kills to get going, for anything really sinister to happen. Um, and the first time it does start happening, you almost, one, you forget you're watching a horror film and you almost question of whether or not what you saw what you actually saw, which is a hand coming out of a toilet. Um, and then because the enti- throughout the entire film, they have a character who's, his whole job is to be crazy. He's the crazy guy. He's there to scare pledges. So like they 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 fake these these scenes of like people getting stabbed, but they can't call the cops or else their fraternity is going to get called down or going to uh, cops are going to get called down to the fraternity and shut them down. So like the pledges are in fear and they have to sh- hang out with this guy who they think is crazy who's stabbing people. It's crazy. Um, so there's a point in time where when I put this movie in, I forgot about the whole idea of this character named Acid Sid. So I'm like, oh, okay, uh, this guy who's the crazy guy is probably going to actually go crazy. And yes, that does happen. 
he legitimately does go crazy. But then you also find out about this this character named Acid Sid, who, as I as said in the back of the box, was killed in the hazing ritual. He was a you know hardcore hippie back in the day. And almost, you get the vibe from the flashbacks that he's almost joining the fraternity just to um, protest it almost or to see if he could get involved. Um, and they were, the the hazing ritual they did for him was there, they filled a bathtub with vinegar and like gross things like cereal and banana, like just a bunch of gross stuff and dirt and he had to like lay down into it or some shit like that um but one of the 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 frat boys wasn't paying attention and accidentally filled the tub with acid instead of vinegar why you have that much acid laying around i'll never know and the guy essentially got gooified and uh was killed and um his his body comes back his spirit comes back to raise hell so the night where these pledges are finally going to become fraternity members he's there to deliver stupid one-liners and kill people realistically it's when it's when acid sid came in that i lost interest like as, as cool as it could have been i guess i was hoping for more of a traditional slasher type villain because honestly like supernatural things would happen and he would just walk in. He could teleport. And that just made it a little less interesting. But all the characters are... like Even the shitty characters are all really well performed. And they're all really well... They're all really likable. So you, I find myself rooting for them. Even though most of them are pretty terrible people. Uh, Pledge Night was a lot of fun to watch though. I had a good time watching it. And if you're like me and you're a slasher movie junkie. Even though it's not technically a slasher film. It's got a lot of the same setups. Uh, I think it's still worth checking out. Special features include a the it's newly scanned and restored in 2K from its 35 millimeter camera negative. Uh, then Hell Weeks, a video interview with director Paul Ziller, uh, where he talks about how he got involved in this project, how he was a working editor for Trauma for a couple years. And by the way, this film does have it's almost got like a, a higher quality Trauma vibe to it, um, meaning that it's like it's got the zaniness of a Trauma movie but better made. Um, kind of like how Surf Nazis Must Die is. Um, graduating to horror, an interview with writer-producer Joyce Snyder. And this is pretty fascinating because Joyce Snyder has a, a history in pornographic film as both, I believe, an actress and a director and a writer. And she wanted to do something a little bit different and spent a lot of time researching fraternities um, and hazing rituals and wanted to put all of this stuff because she thought frets were pretty fucking terrible um, and kind of wanted to put a little bit of social commentary into a horror film. So, yeah, she um, she talks about how she got her research and, and backing up her claims that all of this is real. So it's actually pretty interesting. Um, Hazing from Hell, an interview with actor Robert Lentini, who played the, the frats crazy guy, who talks about how he got the... Um, um, Wait, no, I'm getting my two interviews confused. My mistake. So, Hazing from Hell, an interview of actor Robert Lentini. He's actually one of the, the pledges. The next one, The Bad Man, an interview of actor Arthur Lundquist, is where he talks about how he essentially got the job to be the crazy guy because he had a good laugh. Uh, locations, featurettes, uh, original theatrical trailer, reversible cover artwork, English subtitles, directed by Paula Ziller, starring Joey Belladonna from Anthrax, Will Kemp, Shannon McMahon, Todd Eastland and Arthur Lundquist, or Lundquist, my mistake. 
uh, film was from 1988, 86 minutes in color in one eight five one widescreen DTS HD mono soundtrack. And then finally, from the year 1990, the year I was born, we have there's nothing out there exclamation point. Mike is always getting in the way of fun. Um, <laughs> I do have to talk. I'll, I'll mention this in a second, but uh, I felt kind of attacked watching this film. But anyways, Mike is go. Mike is always getting in the way of fun. His obsession with horror movies and their rules dictates that no matter where he goes, he can't help but expect to find a monster lurking around every corner. But this time, his paranoia must be justified. Dot, dot. After being invited to a remote lodge along with some friends, Mike immediately begins to sense that something isn't right, but none of his friends believe him. Unfortunately, they're dead wrong, and a slimy alien frog monster has indeed landed in the nearby woods and set out to fulfill its mission of killing all human males and mating with females. Can Mike convince his friends that there is something out there before the men have their brains sucked out and women are carrying green mutant fetuses? Made by then 19-year-old cinematic wonder kid Rolf Konevsky, There's Something Out There is a gag and gore-filled co- a horror comedy which lovingly riffs on some of the genre's most used tropes. Produced and edited by acclaimed editor Victor Konevsky, who was actually the editor on Ganja and Hess and Bloodsucking Freaks, Vinegar Syndrome presents the Blu-ray debut of There's Nothing Out There, newly restored from its 35mm interpositive and featuring more extra features than any other title in our catalog, including Konevsky's first feature film, Murder in Winter. Let me get this straight. It's a house in the woods with, with four bedrooms, a pond, and nobody else for miles around. Name a horror film. Any horror film. This place is great. Where's the bedrooms? Why don't I take a nice stroll down that dirt path into the woods late tonight all by myself? Ooh, I think I stepped on something. Afterwards, I can go skinny dipping in the pond. I don't see anything. There's probably nothing. There is something out there. Don't forget, I have rented out every single horror film on videotape. It's driving me crazy. There's no need to worry. What are we talking about here? Those things that pop out of your stomach when you least expect it? Yes, I think you've seen some of these too. There's no need to fear. There's nothing out there. That's where the rest of the chicken was. Yeah, no more There's nothing out there. something because now it's in here where's jim jim's in the other room melting right now this can't be happening you don't know anything about that creature except it like everyone else hates a mouthful of shaving cream this can't be so come on you're quick nice bikini this stuff only happens in movies so you're saying we're in a movie Uh uh-oh This thing hasn't missed a trick. Controls mind, eats people, reproduces. This thing's gonna have itself an orgy. It's a fight to the death with a slimy mutation. And that's how I spent my summer vacation. You see the creature? Give him my best. There's nothing out there. Well, this was a fun vacation, Nick. Too bad we have to go home now. From 20-year-old filmmaker Ralph Konevsky. 
This is a fantastic release. Um, the film is a little clunky, but it's made by a 19-year-old kid. So I like this film quite a bit. I think it very slightly overstays its welcome a little bit because it was kind of a long hour and a half, even though it doesn't. It, it's an hour and a half film. It, did, it felt longer than an hour and a half. But anyways, I love films like this that you can tell are lovingly inspired by films like The Evil Dead, where it's about a bunch of kids who go to a cabin in the middle of the woods. To be fair, this cabin's extremely nice. It's more of a lake house, because this house is really cool looking. It has no semblances of a cabin whatsoever. But as the beginning of the the the, the paragraph says, is you know, that one character is obsessed with all the rules that go into a horror film. This film predates Scream by at least five, six years. And while this is not the first t- horror movie to be self-aware, especially ones in Vinegar Syndrome's catalog. I did talk about Wacko uh, not too long ago. But this film, it feels very much like Scream in that there is a character who is obsessed with horror films, who is aware of what's going on, and is constantly pointing out things like, hey, this is a sign. You know, there's a, an accident on the way to this this cabin that we're going to. That's, in a, any horror movie, that would be a bad sign. Why are we still going here? Oh, here's some kids that came swimming at our, at our local pond doesn't that seem weird to you wouldn't that just be a body count in another horror film so he's he's constantly um uh poking holes in every situation be like why are, why are we doing this the character himself i really like after a little while he becomes a little annoying because he stays on screen just a little too long and becomes a little condescending but regardless uh, i feel attacked because his name is mike he's obsessed with horror films and he's annoying all his friends who does that sound like yeah, it sounds a lot like me, but regardless, um, I found myself really enjoying this film. This film, like the acting, is pretty serviceable. But um, the the actor who plays Mike is actually really good. What I was really impressed by was Rolf Konevsky's shooting style. So he's 19 years old. He can't. He's his, he's the son of a relatively famous editor. Uh, and Victor Konevsky, um, and uh, his, his father talks about how he didn't want his son to go into the business of film, but at the same time, want him to make his own decisions, and they talk about in the features about how Rolf was constantly making movies and just was became obsessed with it, made his first feature film as a senior project in high school, and then made this shortly after, and has been making films ever since. From what I've seen from his filmography, he does a lot of, like, uh, like nudie cuties and X-rated film. Maybe not necessarily full-on porn, but movies that definitely skirt the realm of porn. Uh, the word sexualize is used in a lot of the descriptions. Um... But I guess what I found really endearing about this film is the way that Rolf moves the camera. Uh, it's got a very kinetic style where it, it, it's, it moves when it needs to, to to keep the scenes going. And the way he transitions in and out of scenes sometimes is very seamless. Um, and despite the fact that I said like, I think the film felt a little long at times, it is extremely well edited. Scenes don't ever really feel like they go on for longer than they need to, and it has a great energy to it, and part of that is because his father is a really famous film editor and cut the film for him, so it's kind of cool to watch this 19-year-old kid make this, all things considered, really well-made movie for not a lot of money, and 
but also has someone of a lot of talent kind of helping him going with it and and for lack of a better term keeping him honest and making sure that you know what he's doing is working um so like i said the film is about these kids going to this cabin spooky stuff starts happening mike the horror nerd keeps telling him hey this stuff seems weird um and we don't actually see they 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 do a really good job until about the third act of keeping the creature a secret we know it's something weird we know it's an alien of some sort but we don't quite know get a good look at it until near the end and unfortunately the creature for having no money looks actually pretty good but it's just a frog it's a frog creature it's it's not as scary as it should be, but at the same time, Rolf Konefsky knows what he's doing and doesn't necessarily play it for... He's not trying to make Halloween. He's trying to make something that's fun, that's gory, that's goofy, um, that's going to entertain, and he does a fantastic job with it. Um, this was a, a big surprise for me. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And like I said, none of the actors seem like they're actual actors, but they're all really good, like... Um, I've talked before in the past in the podcast where I think sometimes people get too hard on acting. Um, I feel like I could see all of these actors really trying. And that means a lot. When there's an actor who is trying to really embody a character, but they're not necessarily a great actor, that goes a long way for me. I think that's a lot more endearing than a really good actor who's phoning it in. I'd rather see a not good actor really fucking trying than a really good actor just not giving a shit. And I'm not going to name any names, but there's been a lot of actors over the last couple years who have done that and probably make huge paychecks. And they're never bad, but they're never that good either. Where something like this, it's like, yeah, they're not great, but they're re- like, there's something about the quality of what they're doing. So I'll get off my high horse. Um, definitely check it out. Out of the three films, this is my highest recommendation, with Pledge Night being next and taking Tiger Mountain being three. Um, um, well, that my voice sounded weird right there. Um, um, special features. And there are a lot of them. They were not kidding where this is the most amount of special features available. Oh, and I should also mention, this is a trauma film. This is a film that um, uh, Vinegar Syndrome got from trauma and put out on Blu-ray. So you get to see the amazing trauma team release at uh, beginning. Uh, and that always brings such joy to my heart because for those of you who don't know I wasn't I was an out of state editor for 5 years with Troma Entertainment where I was doing a lot of their video a lot of their YouTube videos um and I had a lot of close personal contact with Lloyd Kaufman so I've got a fondness for any time the non Kaufman Troma films get some love from somewhere cuz I'd never heard of this um but I love that it's out there and I will support Troma and vinegar syndrome however i can but anyways back to the special features newly scanned and restored in 2k from its 35 millimeter interpositive there's a movie out there <laughs> sorry a new interview with writer slash director rolf konefsky and editor victor konefsky who's also the producer his and also his father and it's kind of great. Uh, this interview is really charming. Rolf talks a lot. He's like myself. He talks a lot. And the camera, just so that way it's not just Rolf constantly, keeps cutting back to his father. And it's some of the best unintentionally funny cutaways of all time. But then when his do- father does chime in, he's got a lot of really good information to say and corrects his son when he tries to tell big tall tales and everything. It's it's really charming to watch a, a father and son who really love what they're doing really who really respect each other 
talking about their craft. Um, 40 Years of Cutting, a new interview with Victor Konevsky. I've not finished this yet, but it's I, I, I don't think editors get nearly enough love. And this is like a half hour of just Victor Konevsky and a good friend of his who's an author uh, just talking about the art of editing and working on Ganja and Hess and everything else. Uh, then there's a new interview with actor Craig Peck. Craig Peck, Craig Peck played me in this film. Jokingly, he played Mike, the horror movie nerd. Uh, I also love it too because it's very much like how I would do it. He's sitting in his own personal home theater while he's doing the interview. Fuck, I think this character is me. Um, a brand new group commentary, and I really am excited to listen to this one. A brand new group commentary with director Rolf Konevsky. Joe Lynch, the filmmaker Joe Lynch, who I'm a big fan of. I love his movies, and I used to religiously listen to the movie Crypt. Uh, and Jeff Reddick, who's another filmmaker, and others, and others. I don't remember who's all on it, but uh, Joe Lynch, I can he he. I just love listening to that man talk about film. And Rolf Konevsky is a, a voice that I'm I'm really hoping Vinegar Syndrome puts more of his stuff out because I'm really curious to see what else he's done. Then there's an archival 20th anniversary commentary with just Rolf Konevsky. Then there's an archival group commentary with. Rolf Konevsky, Victor Konevsky, Craig Peck, Mark Colliver, and others. So other people who are involved in the film. And then the commentary with the the podcasting team. The hysteria continues. Once again, Vinegar Syndrome, I will gladly do a commentary for you if you ever need it. Um, archival interview with Rolf Konevsky. Uh, and then Copycat, a short film about the film's influence. Um... Uh, Made by a British filmmaker, uh, Rolf Konevsky also introduces the film. Uh, Murder in Winter, an early feature film by Rolf Konevsky. By Rolf Konevsky. Um, this is, it's low quality, it's shot on VHS, but it's, um, he describes it as his Agatha, Christ, Agatha Christie, Ten Little Indians type murder mystery. Um, and then Just Listen, an early short by Rolf Konevsky. Mood Boobs, another short film by Rolf Konevsky. Um, and then there's also Behind the Scenes of Mood Boobs, theatrical trailer, music video, production still gallery, behind the scenes, rehearsal footage, pre-production footage and video storyboards, original cast auditions, animation test footage and deleted shots, reversal cover artwork, and English subtitles. Holy fucking shit, that's a lot of stuff. This is a must-own. All right, actually, right before I get out of here, I might not be a bad idea to talk about one last title. I said it was going to be three from Vinegar Syndrome, but you know what? Screw it. Um, I very last minute watched a title by Mill Creek, so I thought I should talk about it. So uh, this title is... Oops, sorry about that. I got distracted with the cover artwork. Um, This is a title from Mill Creek called Roxanne. And it's part of their their like VHS classic collection where the, the titles look a little bit like a VHS tape, which is kind of cool. Uh, on the back of the box says, uh, well, first it has a review by Siskel and Ebert, and it says, A comic masterpiece. In the little resort town of Nelson, Washington, well-loved fire chief C.D. Bales, played by Steve Martin, is sensitive about his remarkably long nose. A beautiful, intelligent astronomer astronomer Roxanne, played by Daryl Hannah, in town to study a comet, finds herself attracted to another newcomer, C.D.'s imported professional firefighter, 
Chris, played by Rick Rossovich. Roxanne confides her interest to the secretly smitten CD, who reluctantly passes it on to Chris. But Chris is dumbstruck and convinces CD to ghostwrite a letter to Roxanne 1 that, unbeknownst to Chris, is an outpouring of CD's own feelings for her. Since it seems to both men that Roxanne wants, as Chris tells CD, a man that looks like me and talks like you, the deception continues until Roxanne has fallen in love with the author of the passionate letters, while CD remains c- certain that she could never love a remarkable face like this. Can I look at those nose cards one more time? Oh, yeah. CD Bales had a small problem. They said it was big, but I didn't expect it to be big. <laughs> he could handle every situation. Except the one that mattered most. I'm out of my house. Come on inside, I'll get some tools. I don't have any clothes on. <clears throat> Maybe you'd like some wine with your nose. Cheese. I want to look like Diana Ross. And I think she's fallen in love, but she doesn't know it yet. There's someone I think I should get to know better. His name's Chris McConnell. This time I want you to do it, Dave. I want you to cut the thing off! Maybe you could encourage him a little. Look, she wants somebody who looks like me and talks like you. Don't panic. Stay calm. Stay calm. Because there is a heart here. That's good. That's okay. That wants you worse to know. There's a possible 502 on Maine. So why'd you say those things? Tell her you were afraid of worms. Because I was afraid of worms, Roxanne. Worms. Worms. Love may be blind. Get out. Get in. No, get out. Get in. But hopefully, Roxanne isn't. Steve Martin. Hey! Daryl Hannah. Why don't you just get that nose job? I did. Roxanne. Hello! Wow! Fifteen love. So this film what not only stars Steve Martin, but was directed by him as well. And um I liked it. I thought it was. I thought it was pretty good. I didn't love it. Um, it has a similar vibe to the movie Overboard, and I'll explain that in a minute. I think Overboard's a better film. So the first act of this film I thought was really great. So Steve Martin has a comically large Pinocchio-style nose, and he's very sensitive about it. One of the first scenes of the movie has him walk, and he's loving life. He's not shy or anything like that. He's loving life. He's walking down the street, and some punks start making fun of him, and he defends himself, and he knows karate, and he's willing to fight. He's got a great sense of humor. People love him, and all's well that ends well, Um, and then... In comes Daryl Hannah, who's this astronomer, and she first meets CD when she gets locked out of her house and uh, she's naked because her robe got caught in the door and she has to go to the fire. He he runs a a uh, volunteer fire department. She goes to the fire department to see if they can get her back in the house, and he does. And he's charming and witty and everything this entire time, and um, it's a pretty it's a pretty run-of-the-mill generic film in a lot of ways, not necessarily in a bad way, where he falls for her, and she doesn't really notice him. Well, she does. They're friends. They're close. She loves talking to him, and she's his go-to friend on everything, um, but she's really smitten by this guy, Chris, who is a dummy, and I say that in the best possible way. I actually kind of love that there's a character who's confident, attractive, uh, 
but he's so afraid to talk to Roxanne that he runs away anytime they're in a scene together. Um, so when Roxanne confides in CD that she likes him and says, hey, you should tell him for me, see if he'll make a move, CD writes a letter and it's terrible, so, um, uh, sorry, Chris writes a letter and it's terrible, so CD decides to rewrite it and this becomes the whole thing. My issue with the film and my wife, actually, my wife Amanda did not respond too well to the film because of this, this deception involved in it where, um, um, CD is helping Chris, so Roxanne will fall in love with Chris, and then they end up sleeping together, and it's, the more you think about it, the, it's really kind of skeezy, like, hey, I'm not good talking to women, you should help talk to me so I can get in bed with her, and the more I think about it, the more I just don't like it, and like I said, it did remind me that of Overboard, where there's just this, this idea of this deception of taking advantage of a woman and her feelings to ultimately get your, your, your ultimate goal where I think overboard's a better film is that in overboard Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell spend a lot of time together and you start seeing how both parties are falling in love with each other this film where I think it suffers a little bit is in the second act through the third act where yes Roxanne has fallen in love with the person writing the letters but we but we never really her and CD any any interaction they're in together is just very very friendly not in a bad way but just very friendly so in the end when Roxanne finds out about CD's um CD's lie um she's mad at him for maybe a couple hours and then professes her love to him and yes i get that she's falling in love with the person writing the letter but i just didn't buy it because she's not necessarily in love with cd i don't know it's it's very confusing for me whereas like i said in overboard it really felt like they were building a connection while i think the deceit in overboard is probably a little bit more problematic um, I ultimately thought it was a better film, um, but much like Overboard, what really kind of sells this film for me is the comedy, and is is Steve Martin. Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah have fantastic chemistry together, and um, if Steve Martin wouldn't have been in this film, I don't know if I would have liked this movie at all. He really is the saving grace. Um, Daryl Hannah's great. I love that she's playing a a brainy a brainy woman um, who's legitimately interested in the stars and. Just their conversations about um, astronomy. I, I, I was really kind of eating that up. Shelley Duvall plays a small but really sweet role in this film. Michael J. Pollard's got a role that's really funny. There's a lot of great humor in this film. Um, if you're a, a sucker for romantic comedies, like I can sometimes be if they're, if they're made well, I think uh, Roxanne is a perfect film for you, and I do recommend it. And Mill Creek did a great job with the film. Like, the Blu-ray looks fantastic. And, um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. So that one's a shorty but a goody. So my last pick of the night is for Roxanne. Um, now for real, we are going to end this episode. Um, once again, thank you for listening. Uh, Flounder, this episode is still dedicated to you. Um, thank you for being a patron and thank you for being a friend. Hopefully you like what we had to say about the raid and you don't hate us too much for it. Um, and um, if you still want us to do Top Gun, Nick sounded interested when I mentioned it to him. 
So thank you for listening, guys. Once again, you can get your own personalized episode by going to our Patreon. And it's a little steep at $50, but you can either be on an episode or you can have your own episode. Whatever you want us to talk about, we will talk about. On top of that, you get any other cool sh- stuff that the other patrons get as well. Uh, we do have some. We uh, I do have a uh, patron-exclusive episode coming out soon where me and Stephen Millick from the Twisted Dreams Film Festival will be just doing a blanket episode on the Oscars where we're just going to talk about everything we've ever wanted to say about the Oscars because he's kind of a... Um, uh, uh, an obsessive fan of the Oscars where he had a challenge for a while where he was going back and watching every best picture from from the Oscars. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So once again, you guys know where to find us everywhere. Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Libsyn, Stitcher, wherever. And if we're not where you want us to be, let me know. I will personally take care of it. So thank you for listening, guys. And uh, to quote Kevin Smith, Have a week. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.